Good evening, everyone. I pray that uh, you are blessed uh, this evening. No matter what you've had to endure throughout this day, remember this, the Lord has been with you all along. And if you forgot about that, tomorrow is another day. And uh, so thankful that he's patient enough with us that uh, he'll say, remember now, I'm with you. And no matter what you go through, I'll be with you still. So let's never forget that. Turn to Daniel chapter 7, if you will. We've been going fairly steady through the first six chapters of, of the book of Daniel. And along the way, of course, we've, we've uh, had to take uh, some time through chapter 2 because of the, uh, the uh, visions and dreams of Nebuchadnezzar that were interpreted by Daniel that were grave interpretations for the future of the world, in particular the Gentile empires that were and are to come and their relation to Israel, the nation of Israel, and the people of Israel. But primarily, the the first six chapters is historic and chronological until we get to chapter 7. And you'll see immediately why that changes. Look, if you will, at verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, we've already met Belshazzar back in chapter 5. And he was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, he wasn't all that great of a guy. Yeah, he didn't uh, uh, subscribe uh, to the uh, change of heart that Nebuchadnezzar had after meeting the, uh, the Most High God, the God of Israel, in that, uh, in that seven-year period of time that he was very much like a beast and an animal. God had him out there in the, in, in the midst of the uh, uh, environment of, of, of animals to, to realize that there's only one God. And Nebuchadnezzar wasn't that God. But later on, his grandson uh, decided he had his own gods to worship and his own ways about it, as we saw back in chapter 5. So you'll notice now we're going back a little bit to the first year of Belshazzar because it is in that time that Daniel actually receives his own dreams and visions, as it says here in verse 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. And then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matter. So in receiving them, he immediately got to, he got to writing these things down. And, and really to the, to, the, to the fullness of the matters at hand, what he was receiving from the Lord. And it says in verse 2 that Daniel spake and he said, I saw in my vision... By night. Now, this is another interesting thing because as Daniel has been writing in the first six chapters, he's been writing pretty much in the third person. Now he writes in the first person. And he says, I, Daniel, uh, or uh, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, 
the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse or different one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made stand upon the feet as a man, and and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I, I beheld, and, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. And so here's a beast that, of course, all of them are, are not natural beasts in the sense that you know, lions today don't have wings, and, and uh, well, bears are, are bears, but uh, leopards don't have four heads and, and wings as well. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and and it had great iron teeth. Now this is even beyond natural. Whereas the others at least had natural things to it, like wings, but not really, you know, a natural thing with those animals. This has iron teeth. And it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold there came up among them another little horn. Before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. I tell you, I was looking for some kind of an image that would kind of uh, show you something of that uh, vision. Uh, But man, some of them were just uh, laughable to to look at. So I thought, no, I think we'll pass on that. So, as I said in chapter, chapters 1 through 6, Daniel was presented as a as a young Jewish captive, I haven't told this to you, I'm, I'm telling to you now, uh, telling this to you now. But he was presented, Daniel in the first six chapters was presented as a young Jewish captive who was determined in his mind and in his heart not to defile himself. He was a young man intent on faithfully worshiping his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a man around whom God placed a hedge of protection. Obviously, as we learned back in the day of Nebuchadnezzar, he was a man to whom God granted wisdom to interpret the visions of Gentile kings. Oh, and by the way, Daniel protected from uh, Darius also later on in life. But he was a man to whom God granted wisdom to interpret the visions of Gentile kings. Visions depicting the empires of the world from the king's perspective. And he was a trusted man who, 
through his God, was given positions near the top of the hierarchy of those who had conquered him and his people. So if we wanted to, we could entitle these first six chapters, Daniel, the Interpreter of Dreams and Visions. But in chapters 7 and 8, Daniel didn't just interpret visions. He was given visions by God. Visions concerning the great Gentile kingdoms of the world now from God's perspective, not from man's perspective. So if you're writing notes, that's a very important point to make. That Daniel is receiving visions from God, from God's perspective. Connected to the same vision given to to Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2. And you'll see that in just a moment. We can certainly say that the chronological sequence of the book of Daniel ends with chapter 6, as I said before, and the apocalyptic or the predictive or the prophetic section begins with chapter 7. So now, other than chapter 2, truly now the prophecy part of the book of Daniel begins. Through a series of visions and revelations, Daniel has shown the events of history that will unfold. Beginning with Belshazzar and the Babylonian Empire through the Medo-Persian Empire with Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, Daniel is shown the Gentile world kingdoms and how the nation of Israel will be affected by them. I want you to take note right now that today Israel is affected by the empires of the world. In fact, the speech given yesterday to our Congress by Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of the State of Israel, repeatedly mentions one of the nations in our text. If that isn't enough for people to realize that the Word of God is true, And that we're living in the last days. And that because of all of the events that are taking place, as Jesus had had told us before he went to the cross, and reminded his disciples that he would be coming again. I don't know what the world needs know how true the Word of God is. We'll talk more about that as we go along. And you'll, you'll see what nation was referred to from the Scriptures. You already know, I'm sure. Now, when we arrive at chapter 9, which we will be doing that shortly, Daniel will tell us about the first and second comings of Jesus. And, and so the visions that are revealed to Daniel, they cover a large part of history that extends well into the future, but not so far into the future for us as we see his day approaching rapidly. I think that as, as a message for the church is, is really something that we need to take to heart and heed carefully and prayerfully. 
that as we look at the Scriptures tonight, we're not sitting here tonight from the, just from plainly an academic point of view. We're being presented with a message from God that is written to our time as much as it was written to the children of Israel in Daniel's time and beyond as well as to the church. Because the text of Daniel is mentioned very clearly by Jesus himself. So the prophecies not only affect Israel, but they affect the church as well. So we're also going to see now at the end of chapter 7 that the text will change from the Aramaic language, the language of Babylon, back to the Hebrew language. Again, at the end of chapter 7. Why? Well, the reason being that the Lord will once again be speaking directly to the Jewish people. You see, in the first six chapters, He's speaking, for the most part, to the the Gentile nations. But he will come back to speaking directly to the Jewish people in, in, um, in chapters 8 and following. Now the focus will be on them. The focus will be on their coming Messiah. And the focus will be on the trouble that these world empires will have upon them, upon Israel. So let's keep in mind that the beasts that we will be looking at here are referring to the same kingdoms that were mentioned in Nebuchadnezzar's statue vision. You remember the statue, the, the, the humongous statue that uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually built for himself, but, but he built it all out of pure gold. But you remember that the vision that was given to him was interpreted by, was, was first of all received and interpreted by Daniel to show him four kingdoms. The top part only, the, the head and the shoulders, as it were, was, was about Nebuchadnezzar and it was about Babylon. But the chest and the arms was, was, was all about uh, another kingdom. And that, of course, ended up being the kingdom, the silver, the, the silver uh, chest and all, was uh, the kingdom of Medo-Persia. But then prophetically... Daniel, because Daniel has lived through Babylon and, 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 and Medo-Persia. But prophetically, he wouldn't live for the next, the next section, which was the, uh, the lower abdomen part of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the statue, which was actually bronze. And this represented uh, the Macedonian or the Greek Empire, led by Alexander the Great, who came many, many years later. And of course, then the legs and the feet the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay mixed was uh, all about Rome or the Roman Empire. But when he built his statue, he built it, what? All out of gold. And, of course, it was uh, a large, magnificent, multi... Uh, well, the, the vision that he had received before this was a, a magnificent, multi-metallic image that represented all those Gentile world kingdoms But again, that was from man's perspective. That was how man is going to see these kingdoms come. But now here in in this dream that is given to Daniel and the visions that are given to Daniel, from God's perspective, how does God see things? 
God sees these kingdoms as wild beasts. Do you see the difference? Man looks at the kingdoms from the standpoint of, 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 of uh, metals and elements, as it were. Precious metals. God sees them as beasts. Which brings to mind a thought. There is something quite solemn and quite serious in considering history from God's viewpoint. All we've really ever gotten in our, in our day and time and what we've gotten in our education mostly, of course, is from world history. It's, it's from history from man's perspective, isn't it? I hope we've learned a lot from it. I think later on, and especially in these days and times, there's a lot of revision going on in history. There's a lot of things changing. I think a lot of our children in public schools are not really learning about, let's say, our own nation in the way that we learned about it. And the importance of the foundations of faith and the importance of the foundations of the of, of law and the Constitution and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a serious thing to consider history from God's viewpoint because as God sees it, it's quite different. Because if history is read simply from man's perspective, you'll find a great deal of space given to exalting humanity on its marvelous exploits and its achievements. We are near reaching perfection as far as human government and economy are concerned. Or so man thinks. But from God's perspective, what is most highly esteemed among men is an abomination in His sight. And truly that's what the Word of God teaches us. That whatever man thinks is some high or great or mighty thing that man has accomplished and man is accomplishing still alone and by itself... Uh, as far as humanity is concerned, or humanism is concerned, if you're, if you're ever interested in really getting an idea of how man thinks outside of God, you need to one day read the Humanist, uh, the, uh, uh, the humanist Manifesto. Uh, was first uh, devised, I think, around 1933 by a bunch of communist uh, evolutionary atheists. <laughs> And you'd be, you'd be surprised to see some of the names on the list uh, that's ascribed to the Humanist Manifesto. It was later on revised and added even more godless uh, comments to it. That's the thing that really becomes uh, an abomination to the Lord and, and is an abomination to the Lord. When man is esteemed above God, when we realize that even the very first few commandments that are given and were given to Moses, you shall have only one God before you. And you shall worship that God alone. So let's remember the, uh, this throughout the rest of our study of Daniel. Something that is written in Psalm 49 verse 12. It says, Nevertheless man being in honor abideth not. In other words, Nevertheless man being in honor will not last. Man being honorable or being honored for the things that he does, that's not going to last he is like the beasts that perish. He is like the beasts that perish. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? 
when he got so high and mighty in his own viewpoint, in his own way of thinking, in his own perspective about himself, he got in trouble with God. And God turned him into a beast like human. In verse 1 of our text, let's go back there. I'm not going to put it up here, but very quickly. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head, uh, head upon his bed. And then he wrote the dream and he told the sum of the matters. In verse 1, Daniel is telling us the time frame now that these visions occurred during the first year of Belshazzar's reign as king. Now, historical records tell us that Belshazzar was made a co-regent with his father in 553 B.C. And so to put this into a chronological setting, this event, the receiving of these dreams, took place between Daniel chapters 4 and 5. Somewhere between Daniel's 4 and 5, these things are happening. In other words, before the fall of Babylon in chapter 5. And so Daniel was around 69 years old then at the time of receiving the dreams and visions. And then we see in verses 2 and 3, let's go back there now. Daniel spake and he said, I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Now, the four winds speak of the heavenly powers in which God sets in motion His prophetic plan. Now, whether they are just angels, which for the most part they are, or whether it's the release of, uh, and the allowance of, of uh, demons to, to try to uh, get out and, and, and mess up things. Of course, he, they can't mess anything up because God's in control. But whatever it is, the four, ro- the four winds represent this power in which God sets in motion His plan prophetically. It is the sovereign power of God in which the nations of the world are set in motion. The Hebrew word for winds, by the way, is the word ruach. And uh, if you know the word, anything about the word ruach, you know that that's the word that is used often for the Holy Spirit in the singular sense. But it's also used in a plural sense as it is here because it can also be used for spirits, signifying angels. I want you to consider Revelation chapter 7. Now we're going to go back and forth between Revelation and, and Daniel chapter 7, so make sure you keep your finger here in, in Revelation But in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, notice that it says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Uh, So there there are certain angels that are given this power to control, or or at least to, to hold back the winds until the Lord would want to release them. So again, it could be just releasing and and allowing certain powers or certain uh, 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 principalities, uh, you know, to to do things on the earth. We know in the book of Revelation, when we did our study in that, that there was a lot of things happening that the enemy was, was causing, but yet, again, God was still in control. There was nothing that God was surprised in. He already knew the end from the beginning 
and the beginning from the end. So these forces now are moving, it says in our text, upon the Great Sea. Now, the Great Sea, of course, is the Mediterranean Sea. Now, we're going to look at this in a very literal way and, a, and also in a figurative way. We'll see in just a moment. But it is moving upon the Great Sea. The way it works in, in the sense of being literal is that all the four powers that are represented by the beasts in, in this particular vision, they're all bordering the Mediterranean. All of them. So these forces are moving upon the great sea and causing, I think in the New King James it says it's stirring up or stirring the sea, causing them in, in, in essence literally to burst forth as it were. And as, as that happens, four great beasts come out of the sea. Now let me also describe to you the word strove in that, in that verse uh, that we saw in verse 2 uh, and stirring. It, it, it literally means a, a restless sea, a, a causing the sea to become restless. Now there's nothing more restless today than humanity. Humanity is restless in all manner of ways. We can look at things from a very global, global perspective and uh, 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 in, in, internationally, you know, when you look at the news, uh, for those of us that were in Israel not too long ago, uh, you know, watching the TV and watching some of the news, whether you're watching it in English or in Hebrew, if you didn't know the Hebrew, there was a lot of stuff going on there too uh, in that language, but we, nobody understood it. We just kind of said, something's happening. See, but, but what it is is that so much is happening in this world. Look at just in the last two days in, the, in this country. And all of the controversy over the speech of Benjamin Netanyahu in Washington. And as I'm working, getting ready, and I kind of keep, you know, at times just kind of keeping an ear on things. I have on my phone this little breaking news thing, you know, that tells me of things that are happening. So I looked and then I found out that, you know, this ambassador to South Korea was attacked. Has anybody gone anywhere in the world and found a place that you just are peaceful at? I mean, just, you know, you can be at peace. Well, that was a trick question. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, no matter where we are, we're at peace. Doesn't matter where we go. But the world is not. And not, no matter how much they try to convince us that they're trying to work for peace, I tell you, there are enough there are plenty of forces working against that. Working against true peace because they're enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so humanity as a whole is restless. And so out of that restlessness comes these four great beasts out of the sea. And while the, the Mediterranean, as I said, physically plays a part in this scenario, it also symbolizes something else. Fallen humanity. Fallen humanity. And thus out of fallen humanity, these four beasts will arise. Turn to Revelation chapter 13 now. And then 17. 
this is going to help us support this understanding, this uh, idea that I've just mentioned to you. Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2. John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea. Now, back when we studied the book of Revelation and, and this particular chapter, we, we talked about the sand of the sea. Now, first of all, we know something from the Scriptures. Sand, you can't count the grains of sand. They're innumerable. And, and so... That's the same way with humanity. It's very hard. You know, we have an idea of what it could be close to, but it's an innumerable number. Uh, I stood upon the sand of the sea, the sea, not just the, 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 the shore of the Mediterranean. He's, he's speaking about the sea of humanity. And saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, did we not read a little earlier a little bit about another beast, the fourth beast that comes out of the sea? And it's kind of similar in description. We'll come back to that in a, in a little while. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Now, now we're, we're seeing all of them combined, aren't we? The, the ones that we just saw in Daniel, now they're just, they seem to be like one... They're, they're all conglomerated. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and, and great authority. But they're out of the sea. These, these nations, but now more of a combined nation because now all the different empires that existed separately have come together. We look at Revelation 17, verse 15. It says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The waters, the sea, are the peoples, the multitudes, the nations and the tongues. The sea of humanity. But specifically in a certain region of the world. Specifically and generally, we have to see this picture. Now before we go on, let's remember that the person of the Antichrist will come out of these world powers. But may I tell you, as I told you in the book of Revelation, not necessarily from the West. The Mediterranean borders the East as well. And as we learned about the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was really split between West and East. And the majority of the, of, of the armies of the, of the Roman Empire during the time of, of, uh, of John, as well as the, you know, the times of Jesus, and, and, and all were really out of the Eastern part. The enemies of Israel today that surround them from every side except for the Mediterranean Sea make up much of what was already considered part of the Roman Empire. So you see, this, this is something that is very uh, significant for our day and time as we see what is happening in, in the world uh, as far as Israel is concerned. It was not just happenstance that Netanyahu spoke 
in Washington to the houses of Congress. He spoke because God wanted him to speak to a nation that for so many years has been Israel's only friend, only true friend. They have other uh, relations with other nations, but as far as friends are concerned, who has stood with them? And I almost saw this, and I speak now on a very personal basis, but I almost saw this. As God saying to this nation, don't back away from this country. Don't back away from this nation. They're my people. So what about all the controversies? Why is he speaking? And, you know, he's only political and everybody's it's all about politics. You ever thought that God wanted him to? You ever thought that he stood at that, at that podium there in Washington yesterday because God said, these are my people. Has anybody looked at the word of God lately? They're still my people. Has anybody looked at what's happening in the world today and realized that the end is coming soon and my people are still here? Have we forgotten that it tells us in the book of Genesis, he who blesses you, I will bless but he who curses you, I will curse. Seems simple, but profound. So we live in a time where the sea is the most restless that it's ever been. I think Rich Friedman messed up my microphone. I can't get it to work anymore. I'll get him one from his own next time. The great sea is described again as restless. Again, a picture of Gentile powers. You remember, how many of you remember back in the 60s, you know, the, you know, the Cold War and the, and the button in Washington and the button in Moscow, right? Uh, you all remember that? That at any moment, you know, everybody's just worried about the button being pressed and then all of a sudden nuclear war is going to take place. That, that's just talking about two nations right there restlessness throughout the whole of the world. Look at Isaiah 17, verse 12. It says, Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. Again, this is describing this restlessness of nations. Restlessness of people going here and there to and fro worried about Annihilation, worried about starvation, worried about all kinds of things. Because they haven't put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the one who provides for those who trust in Him. Oh, He's provided for everyone else too. There's, there's this general sense of grace, isn't there? A general grace, the Bible teaches, you know, it, rains upon the, it rains upon the just and the unjust, the Scripture says. You all understand that, right? I mean, 
there are a lot of people that are blessed in, this, in, in the sense of what they have. I mean, some people, hey, I just found out there's a list for billionaires now. Some of us are old enough to remember that, you know, the millionaire list was, was something else. Wow, a millionaire. No, that's nothing. You know, you've got to be a billionaire. It's crazy. And yet, if a person dies a billionaire without Christ, he ain't going to take it with him. He or she. And so four beasts come up out of the sea quite different from each other. Let's, let's go to three of them tonight because next week we're going to focus our attention upon that ugly beast that we, can't, we, we don't even have a good picture for. You know. Let's start off with the winged lion. We all, we all know that that's Babylon. There's no, no doubt about that. Daniel chapter 7 verse 4 says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were, were plucked and, and it was lifted up from the earth and, and, and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. A very interesting little picture there. The first empire corresponds again to the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. Now, that is the Babylonian empire. The winged lion was, was a favorite image in Babylon. Just check any museum that has a Babylonian display. Or you can look on the internet and you can look at some of the old uh, things that they used to carve into their buildings and into their uh, walls and all. You know, winged lions. Interestingly enough, both the lion and the eagle were symbols of Babylon in Scripture as well. Consider Jeremiah 4 verse 7. It says, The lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. When you look at the context of Jeremiah chapter 4, you realize it's speaking of Babylon. It's speaking of Babylon. You go to Ezekiel 17 verse 3. And it says, Thus saith the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long-winged, full of feathers, which had diverse colors, came unto Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. When you look at the context of Ezekiel chapter 17, you'll notice that the context is about Babylon. I don't have this up here, but you can look at uh, Jeremiah 49. I believe it's verses 19 through 22. But that little section there is actually talking about Nebuchadnezzar and it mentions a lion and an eagle. So that's, that's uh, what did I say? Jeremiah 49, yeah. Jeremiah 49 verses, nine, I believe it's 19 through 22. So not only does the scripture use those terms for, for Babylon, but also for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what is a lion? Well, a lion, of course, typifies power. It typifies strength and majesty. And that is exactly what the Babylonian Empire was like. Add to that the swiftness of this kingdom signified by the eagle's wings. So the wings speak of swiftness. Just think of the fall of Nineveh and the end of the Assyrian Empire, which occurred in 612 B.C. And Egypt, along with Pharaoh Necho, defeated at the Battle of Karshemish in 606. Those were very quick battles that the Babylonians won to conquer the world. 
in just a short matter of time, relatively speaking, as, as, as we'll see. But then Daniel's vision changes. The beast's wings, here we're talking about the same winged lion, the beast's wings are plucked off. It was made to stand on two feet like a man. It was given a man's heart. Wow. There could be a few ways of interpreting this, but it certainly seems to be illustrating the breaking of Nebuchadnezzar until he came to realize that the Most High God rules. Oh, how this mighty kingdom was soaring until Nebuchadnezzar was humbled to an animal-like state and this lion was made to stand on two feet like a man. Nebuchadnezzar and his leadership until he passed away didn't, you know, when when you have a a nation that is, uh, or an empire ruling the world, the known world at the time, it doesn't die a, a quick death. It, it dies a slow death. And we realize that, uh, that the last nail on the coffin was put in by Belshazzar, Belshazzar himself, his grandson, right? So there was a number of years. Daniel was still there in Babylon. But the kingdom, when, when, when Nebuchadnezzar went through this experience with God, brought the whole nation or the whole empire into this uh, slowdown to where eventually they, they became complacent. And then the most complacent of their kings, of course, lost the nation to, to the Medo-Persians. The beast was changed into a man. Now we can look at that from the standpoint of the weakness of Babylon by the time that the Medo-Persians show up. But I want to give you a different perspective also. Because the beast was changed into a man. What does that sound like to you? Nebuchadnezzar became a beast as we saw back um, in chapter 4. And seven years... He spent out in the fields like an animal until his kingdom was restored to him by God himself. And his heart was humbled and changed by God. And he took him from his all fours to stand like a man again. His heart was humbled. And changed by God. The Lord continues in that work today. That continues on. Changing beastly hearts to sensitive hearts. And may I say to you that you either walk in humility or you will crawl in humiliation before Him. Better to walk in humility. And then there's the bear with... Did I, did I miss Ezekiel? Oh, we got that one, right? Okay. Then there's the bear with ribs. And I don't mean a bear that just you could see ribs, because mo- most bears you can't see ribs, because they're, they're so big. No, the ribs are in his mouth. We're not talking, you know, the little, the little what do you call those little short ribs? Anybody hungry? I'm hungry, I'll tell you. 
Talk about ribs, man. I could eat a stack of them. They were the long ones. What do you call them? The, the full rack. Uh, yeah. Now I don't. I don't. I, I think they're more. They, these here would look, would look more like the ones that the Flintstones had. You remember those? Those ribs. Anyway, the, <laughs> the bear is Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. Look at verse five. And behold, another beast, a second like like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side. Now that's the weird part of the, of the bear. Because you know, the, the lion had wings and the leopards are going to have wings and four heads. But this bear is, is, is standing on one side. Which means that if I, I'm not going to do it, okay, but if, if I were to <laughs> put my hand all the way down to the ground, which I can't do it, but I could, and I was just like this, you know, that's rare for a bear. A bear doesn't do that. Uh, you know, that's, that's, most animals don't do that. You know, stand on one side, or, you know, either the left or the right side. Okay, that, that's a weird picture, isn't it? That's a strange thing. So it says, uh, it raised up itself on one side and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. Interesting. So the second beast, which is distinct from the first, is that of a bear, and it corresponds to the chest and arms of silver in Daniel chapter 2. So again, the, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, the chest is the ones that actually uh, uh, conquered Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the bear is not known for its swiftness and its skill. In comparison to all other uh, very powerful animals. It's known for its brute force. It's known for its formidable strength and, and, and a sort of lumbering, rumbling gait, right? You know, usually. But be careful. Bears can run, you know. But they're not as fast as other animals. They still can run, you know. And I think that that's what diffuses some people's thinking, you know. Sometimes they see a bear, they say, well, it can't be that fast. They're pretty fast they're taught when they need to be. So you have to be careful. I don't know why I'm giving you that lesson. Anybody going where bears are next week? I hope not. Okay. So the empire won its battles by its massive numbers of men that overtook its enemies. Hence, it was a very slow-moving army, and yet it was fierce. In battle. Now, the strange thing about this bear, as I said, is that it was raised up on one side. That is, its front and back paws are raised on one side, not standing on its hind legs. I'll show you a picture of one standing on its hind legs, because all the other all the other images that I saw were laughable. So, so anyway, this this is uh, uh, the way it is. But historically speaking, the Persian part of the alliance was considered stronger and more honorable than the Median part. And even though the Medes rose first, the Persian army outshadowed and overshadowed the Medes in their United Kingdom. That's why you hear of Cyrus the Persian being, of course, uh, overseeing all things, and Darius the Mede is really just kind of a... Even though king of Babylon... Uh, Cyrus, the, the Persian, was really the one in charge. The other strange fact about this beast is that it has three ribs in its mouth and is told to arise, devour much flesh. These ribs represent the conquest of this kingdom uh, that it had made over the nations, and specifically Lydia, which is Asia Minor, the area of Turkey, Babylon, the area of, the, of Mesopotamia, 
uh, and then Egypt. These were conquered uh, by the Medes and Persians. By the way, I had mentioned that uh, Netanyahu focused uh, his attention on one of these nations. Well, the nation is, is Persia, Iran. I, I knew you knew that. At least I hope you did. Look how long ago Israel has been dealing with Persia. Cyrus and his son Cambyses conquered the Lydian kingdom and King Croesus in 546 B.C. Then they defeated Nabonidus and Belshazzar and the Babylonians in 539 B.C. And finally, Pesamtik III was the pharaoh of Egypt and the Egyptians fell to Cambyses in 525. And so this kingdom did arise and it ate much flesh in its conquering of those world empires. Then we come to the, the winged four-headed leopard, Greece or Macedonia, because the reality is that Alexander was a Macedonian. Uh, so that's, that's something we'll, we'll talk about actually in chapter 8. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But in verse 6 it says, After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of its four wings of a fowl, had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now this beast corresponds to the belly and thighs of bronze in Daniel 2, and as I said, represents the Grecian Empire. Now the the leopard illustrates for us the idea of agility, of cunning, swiftness, and an insatiable thirst for blood. All manifested by this kingdom. This beast had four wings on its back to illustrate an even greater swiftness beyond natural ability and four heads to signify its cleverness. There seems to be no doubt that Daniel is speaking of Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire that conquered the whole world in a very short time. In fact, by the time that Alexander the Great reached the age of 32, just 11 years of doing battle, he had conquered the known world. 32 was his age. And he died at that age. Now the four heads also speak of four leaders. The four heads of the leopard. After the death of Alexander, we see his kingdom not given to his family, but actually given to four generals. And this is history. This is part of our world history. And so the kingdom was divided. Cassander was over Greece and Macedonia. That was more of the western part, as it were. Lysimachus was over Thrace and a, part, a large part of Asia Minor, again, the area that we know as, as uh, the lower Baltic and the uh, 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 Turkish uh, area, what is known as Asia Minor. Seleucus was over Syria and the Middle East, and so now further east we go. 
and Ptolemy was over Egypt. So it was a large crescent. Do large crescents play a part in, in, in biblical uh, prophecy today? It sure does. How many of you have heard of ISIS? The Islamic State, this is their name for it, but it's interesting that the, it's called the Islamic State of Iraq and, and, and Syria, but that's misleading because Syria, uh, that, you know, you sometimes hear our government call it ISIL, the uh, Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. The Levant, and this is the reason I don't like to use that term, the Levant includes all of that area of Syria and Israel. And it's as if they're just giving Israel over to these Islamic fundamentalist terrorists by calling it ISIL. Has anybody ever heard of, anybody ever heard anybody defend Israel in all of that? They haven't. It's like they've just given them over. That's that crescent that goes from, from that top part of the Mediterranean all the way around. I mean, we're talking Lebanon and Syria and, and uh, down to Jordan and, and uh, parts of it, all the way around that, that corner. It's all surrounding Israel, but Israel is included in the Levant. Anybody ever said anything about it? You've never heard it on the news. Very rarely. I've only heard it once. Okay, we'll come across these men, the four kings, in, in chapter 8. But this is, it is as Daniel said about this great empire in, in Daniel 11, verse 3. Look, look at this. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Consider this for a moment. The Babylonian empire dominated in Daniel's day. Daniel was obviously aware of that. The reason I bring this up is because, again, there are those detractors that Daniel ever wrote this book. That he, if, he, if there was a guy named Daniel that wrote this book, he wrote it some 150 years after all of these things had taken place that were described. But if that's the case, then why would Jesus quote from the book of Daniel? Okay? So, Daniel obviously was aware of the Babylonian Empire because he lived in it. And he would have known, especially with the less than stellar reign of Belshazzar, that the Medo-Persians would have defeated the Babylonians. He would have known that. He, he knew who was outside the gates of Babylon. Wouldn't he? Well, that's obvious. But how could Daniel have known that the next world empire would be like the leopard? in its rise and prominence and that it would eventually be divided into four parts because he wasn't around for that. So here's a principle to consider. And we must consider it. That God knows the future and reveals certain details of the future to and through his prophets. If he didn't know the future, he wouldn't be God. This is why it is so important for us to realize that what we are seeing in the world today 
if we see it at all with an open Bible? We're seeing prophecy take place. If you are around, and, and I, I know that a few of us were, just by the beautiful gray hair that I see out there. But if you were around in, 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 in 1967, some, I don't think any of us were really around in 48, except maybe we were around, but we were just like, you know, back when Israel became a nation. I, I bring that one up because uh, that's prophetic. That the land would be given back to the people of God. 1967. 1973. These are, are key moments in the nation of Israel. In the state of Israel. And, and, when, and I bring them up because those nations that were in battle against Israel in 67 and 73, they wanted only one thing, and that was to annihilate Israel and to drive them into the sea. And the words that have been coming out of Iran, which is Persia, since 1979, when the Ayatollahs arose to power in that nation and uh, they, they, they held hostage all of the Americans in the embassy there for many, many days and it hasn't changed. But they continue to say, death to Israel and death to America. Still, that hasn't changed. And what are we doing trying to negotiate with them? What are we doing? Because they haven't changed. And they won't. That's okay. God's in control. Not them. So this certainly shows that God dwells outside of our time continuum and domain and can see the future as well as the past. And so the proof of fulfilled prophecy the proof of fulfilled prophecy is extraordinarily influential and it is convincing. And I'm telling you this because we're going to close with this now. But I'm telling you this because there are people that we need to bring to Jesus Christ and they need to know, listen, time is short. Time is short. You need to come to know Jesus Christ. The one who died on a cross on your behalf because of your sins and my sins and our sins. But God has made it very clear. I am God. I've told you things that are happening now. I told, told you this thousands of years ago and now they're happening. The proof is not in the pudding. The proof is in his word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21, through 21, it says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, and the day star, that's Jesus, arises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, 
For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They didn't understand. They received these things and they would give them. They said, wow, that's weird. But Lord, you're the one who's given it, so we've got to give it. And eventually, things started falling into place. Lastly, Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. We'll close with this. God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. And notice these words, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will do all my pleasure. I will do everything that I want to do. And I can do it because I'm God and there's no one else. And what God does will always be to his glory and to our good. Always. Declaring the end from the beginning. You can actually say declaring the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He's seen it all already. It's already been done. In his vision. And in his heart. So let's get in touch with him. Let's get in tune with God. Let's get in tune to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not just talking about any God. We need to get in touch with the one true God. And his Messiah, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful and so blessed to have once again an opportunity to worship you and to praise you, to fellowship one with another, and to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive your word. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that you have given. We thank you for the love that you pour out toward us each and every day. A love that has no beginning, a love that has no end, a love that reaches into the heavens, a love that is everlasting. It is a love that we need and a love indeed that we can share with those who need you. Help us, Lord God, in reaching the lost, in reaching those, Lord God, who were without hope in their hearts, as you did for many of us here, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you will continue to change hearts until the day that Jesus breaks through the clouds to gather us together so that where he is, so shall we ever be. We thank you, Lord God, for that promise and the assurance of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Shall we?